The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Providing insight and resources for your spiritual journey. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here's your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan Show. If you are listening live or close to live and you're in the Northern Hemisphere, it is seriously winter, and I have a whole new approach toward winter this year. It is my G-O-A acronym, and that is Go Out Anyway. Because my natural inclination when it's all cold and awful is to say, well, gosh, you know, don't go out. There's a gym on the second floor and you work from home and why do you need to go out? Because I need to go out. That's where the world is happening. So I'm just back from lunch down in Union Square with Dustin Harder, the vegan roadie. He's going to be on the show March 16th. You might want to check out his wonderful online TV show, Traveling Around the country and visiting all the wonderful places to get fabulous vegan food. And one of the most wonderful places in this country for being vegan, for eating plant-based, for getting healthy, is Marshall, Texas. We're going to be talking about that here in just a jiff. I do want to give you a preview before that, though, of who is coming on after the first break. And it's going to be really interesting and a little different for us. I'm going to be bringing on a young man named Paul Chappelle. He is an Iraq War veteran, a West Point graduate, and now a peace activist and author. So uh, he should be a very, very interesting guest, vegan, of course. But now I want to introduce you to just, gosh, the best people in the entire universe of Texas, and we all know that's a big, cool universe, Ed Smith and his wife, Amanda Smith. Now, Ed is the former mayor of Marshall, Texas, so I can no longer officially say mayor and first lady, but I think a lot of us in this movement think of the Smiths as the king and queen of the town that health built. So um, in the mayor's office or not, um, you still seem pretty regal to us. They started Get Healthy Marshall in 2011, and it is now just called the Health Fest. I mean, isn't that cool that all they have to say is Health Fest and everybody knows that uh, people are heading to Marshall, Texas. That's going to be happening the first week of April of 2016. 
And everybody in this movement who has something to say, well, I shouldn't say everybody because somebody may not be coming, but almost everybody is going to be coming. We're talking Garth Davis, uh, Neil Barnard, Michael Greger, Chef AJ, Miyoko Shinner, Tracy McWhorter, Dr. Joel Kahn. I'm coming. I mean, everybody is coming, I think, except my dog, Forbes. It is the coolest place to be, the place to be, that first week of April. Marshall, Texas, welcome, Ed and Amanda Smith. Thank you. Hello. Hi, Gloria. Thanks for having me. Hey there. Victoria, I mean. Okay. I am not hearing any Smiths. Uh, Hi, Jeff. They're not hearing us? Let's see what's happening. Can you hear us? Now I do. Now I do. All is well. Thank you. Oh, I just said welcome. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having us on. Yes, well, thanks. Thank- glad to be on the show. Well, it's absolutely wonderful to have you. So tell us how it all started. How, how did you guys create the healthiest city in America? <laughs> well, I, I think we have a ways to go to be the healthiest city in America, but uh, we're a long ways uh, toward uh, making some improvements in our local area here anyways. And, and it, we are having an impact in, in the state of Texas and actually in other outside of the state also. So it's kind of interesting to see what's happened in the last few years here. Um, it all kind of got started uh, a few years ago uh, when I uh, started taking a long, close look at my own mortality. And uh, my wife, Amanda, who's obviously here now, uh, she persuaded me to read a book called The China Study. And that book had a profound impact on me. I changed my diet uh, two-thirds of the way through the book and um, never looked back, really. Um, I've been the mayor of our city for uh, quite a while off and on for uh, I took a sabbatical for a while came back and uh, I resigned last May uh, still serve on our city commission interestingly enough but uh, I don't have all the, the, the commitments that I did have before which has been a good thing but um, uh, when I was mayor I used to go to uh, D.C. a lot and uh, Austin also our state capital but while we were in D.C. Amanda wanted to stop by and visit uh, a place called the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. And uh, she was very interested in what they were doing, and it, it seemed like an interesting organization. So we stopped by to visit for a few minutes, and uh, lo and behold, Neil Bernard was there. And uh, for those who don't know, he's the director, Dr. Neil Bernard. He's an MD. He started the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. And uh, if you're not familiar with it, you really need to look it up and, and, and see what they do. It's it's amazing. It's uh, Their uh, website is pcrm.org. I'm going to hopefully won't get in trouble with you for giving them a little bit of a commercial there. But. <laughs> not at all. But we we got uh, through that. We just uh, Neil happened to be there, and he spent over an hour with us uh, talking about uh, the plant based movement, what they were doing, and we got involved with them. Became and we were just people off the street. He didn't even know who we are. He was very very generous with his time. And uh, you know we we supported him financially some and. Uh, got involved with them a little bit. Uh, I was on the board of their legislative fund for a while, and so through that, uh, through our involvement with them, going to various events around the country and stuff, we met a lot of people in this movement, uh, doctors and uh, researchers and clinicians, people like that, and uh, we came across uh, Rip Esselstyn, and uh, he wrote the Engine 2 book, and uh, we saw what he was doing. He'd just gone to work with Whole Foods uh, with... Uh, uh, John Mackey uh, trying to uh, uh, hold some events at their local uh, uh, Whole Foods stores for their employees and, and for customers, too, that might want to attend, trying to um, uh, uh, promote a, a healthier lifestyle through nutrition and diet. And uh, his main objective, uh, although he is vegan, uh, his main objective at that point was to try to lower the health care costs. And uh, uh, which were going up quite a bit for their employees. And so we were looking at what they were doing, and we got to thinking, well, what if we did some event like that at a, at a city level, at a community level, and could we bring meaningful change into a community? And so we started visiting with Rip, and, and uh, 
we decided to give it a try. They'd never done anything like that before, and so uh, uh, we brought him into Marshall. I set up a meeting with our firefighters. For those who don't know, Rip is a, a former firefighter in Austin, Texas, and his father is Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, and he's at the Cleveland Clinic, his father is, and he uh, instituted a whole foods plant-based uh, uh, program there for um, uh, uh, cardiac patients that... Uh, Unless you're having a heart attack at that moment or something like that, if you go to the Cleveland Clinic now, you have an option. Instead of going the traditional stents and bypass, if, you, if you're interested and willing, uh, they'll take you and uh, uh, take you down the plant-based option, and uh, they've been very successful with it. Uh, and so, anyway, Rip had uh, done a, a challenge with his firefighters in his fire department. Uh, the leading cause of heart dis- uh, of death in firefighters is heart disease. And so uh, he had some guys in his engine, in engine two house where he was stationed uh, that uh, had high blood pressure. One guy in particular was having some real difficulty with uh, uh, blockage and things like that. And, and so uh, they all kind of went on a challenge and adopted his father's protocol that he promotes at the Cleveland Clinic. And they reversed their um, uh, the clinical signs of heart disease. They were able to uh, lower their total cholesterol. Their blood pressures came down. Of course, Rip was already on this protocol, but the guys at took the challenge uh, and did this, had a tremendous success, and uh, Rip wrote a book about it and got a lot of notoriety and, and went to work with Whole Foods trying to do this. And so we brought Rip to Marshall to meet with our firefighters here, and um, I had him meet uh, with them 30 days before we had a scheduled event that we were going to try to bring to our community. And uh, that went very well. It was very successful. Uh our fire chief and our fire marshal and a couple other uh, firefighters on the uh, in the department there uh, really made a commitment to make a change uh, and really had tremendous results. And uh, by the time we had our main event, they were able to uh, talk about that at the event even, about you know what kind of success they're having. In particular, one guy who is now our fire chief, um, um, he's since moved up to being our fire chief, um, Reggie Cooper, he was a type 2 diabetic uh, on uh, insulin shots and uh, overweight, and uh, he lost somewhere around 50 pounds of weight, and he's off all of his uh, meds. Uh, he doesn't take insulin. He's not diabetic anymore. And so uh, that was exciting. And In and fact, now he looks like he should be on a firefighter calendar. <laughs> For that before. <laughs> and so from there, it's just kinda, it just kind of took off. We, the event was successful. Uh, we decided to have another one the following year. Uh, Dr. Neil Bernard came to that one, Juliana Hever, uh, and uh, Jeff Novick. Uh, I don't know, if, I'm sure you know Jeff. I don't know if any of your uh, listeners, but uh, I'm sorry, Jeff was at the first one. That's right. Catherine Just LaRusso. Yeah, Catherine LaRusso. And so, um, but uh, uh, Jeff is a nutritionist. He was at one of our events uh, and uh, a registered dietitian. Uh, Juliana Hever is the one that came. She's a dietitian at the one that uh, Neil Bernard came to. And uh, it. Uh, and that was really our first health fest. We did that because the Engine 2 thing had been so successful. We expected about 50 people. We thought we'd lucky if we got 30 to 50, and 200 people showed up. It was the largest Engine 2 event they'd ever had. And so we thought, you know, with the momentum from that, we really had wanted to bring Dr. Bernard in, but he wasn't available. And we found out he was available in January. So we got him and Juliana and Catherine LaRusso. And from the inception of that event to the execution was just two months, like uh, 60 days, oh. and uh, we had 120 people show up to that, something that we thought of, booked, and 60 days later put on. So that was really promising, and that was what started the New Year, New You Health Fest that Get Healthy Marshall puts on, and then later became the Health Fest because thanks to you, in part, we moved it from January because we realized the risk we were taking with the weather in terms of travel for speakers. <laughs> yes, some of us did have a little train, a little airplane trouble. Uh, <laughs> but well well worth the trip. And it is cool that it's going to be in April. It'll be beautiful there in April. So everybody who wants to read about this, I know there are lots of festivals. Let's be clear. This is not just like a festival. And they're wonderful, too. This is if you want to turn your health around, or if you're already healthy, you want to be vibrantly healthy, or if you're healthy now and you want to be healthy 30 years from now, 
get yourself to Marshall, Texas. Check out healthfest.com or go to Facebook where they're the Health Fest and start reading about this. See what you can do to get there this year, 2016. If that's not possible, then put it on your wish list for 2017. This is really an experience you need to have. So in addition to the Health Fest, you guys are kind of sort of movie stars there's a a movie about marshall called the marshall plan it's in pre-production can you just give us a line or two about what's going on with that well um we uh had a couple of doctors that uh well a doctor that heard about us and his wife uh, out of switzerland actually and they were touring all over the country to make a movie about the plant-based movement in the u.s and they uh, heard about what we were doing here, and so they came, they interviewed us, they attended some of our events, and came really interested. And so they, as, as best we can understand, they've changed the focus of their um, their movie that they're doing. It's a kind of a documentary type thing uh, uh, to focus primarily on what, what's happened here in Marshall and what we're doing here. Well, it, that's so cool, because one of the things I noticed, I've been at two health fests so far, is the the restaurants in the town, and you have some beautiful restaurants. I mean, the the decor, the flowers, the furnishings, and some of the restaurants in Marshall, Texas, are just absolutely extraordinary. And most of them have an an extra menu, a plant based menu. There's not only just we'll find something on the menu; they actually accommodate people uh, who eat this way. And we're talking. Are you considered East Texas? Is that to give yeah. people the geography? East so. Texas. Okay, so you'd fly into Shreveport, Louisiana, or you could fly into Dallas and just drive a little further. So you guys have already um, have, oh, and the movie is The Marshall Plan. Isn't that cute? Um, so we'll be looking for that. But you are now also in the publishing business. You are, are the new owners of uh, Veg World Magazine. What's going on with that? Well, we, we acquired Veg World Magazine uh, at the end of August uh, of this last year, uh, and we, we're just now into our um, second uh, publication that we've done ourselves, I believe. The second yeah, third. we did a November, December, and then we did a January, and I'm working on February right now. And we're wow. taking it. It's, it's become, it was a, a bi-monthly publication, and now we're going, it's going to go monthly. Uh, well, it, 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 we may... Um, uh, we Monday, may have one publication uh, except for one month in, all, in the summer. Winter, and, and then the winter. In the winter. We'll have a double so, issue in so, the summer and the winter. So it'll be about so ten, times a year. ten times a year, so almost monthly. And uh, Amanda's the editor of that, and she can tell you more about it and what's, what the view, what's your vision is for it. Yeah, we're, we're really excited about it. It's a digital magazine. It's not a print magazine. It could go to print someday, but we don't have any immediate plans for that. But it's, it was designed to be read on iPads and tablets, so you can read it on your computer or your phone. And we just recently, the subscription price was twenty nine ninety nine a year, and just this last week we changed it because we want to be able to share the message with more people. So it's nine ninety nine a year now for 10 issues. Wow. an issue. And we feature people like Lonnie Mulrath, and it, this last cover had Josh Tetrick from Hampton Creek Foods in it, and we had an interview with him. Uh, our first issue had a really in-depth profile of Dr. Neil Barnard from PCRM, uh, the most detailed interview that's ever been done with him. I learned so much about him from this interview. <laughs> anyway, well, we're focusing on healthy plant-based diets, and all other aspects of veganism are included, too, though, the environmental and the ethical and so forth. So we just want to get the message out to more people, and it's another platform for us to do so. It, it's about a 80 80- Excuse me, about 100 pages, more or less. Yeah, about 100 pages a month. So it, wow, what a deal. And what's a the, what's... Information, a lot of articles, a lot of advertising, that kind of thing. We, we've got, <clears throat> we're still in the beginning, you know, what we want to do with it. But uh, uh, we, we think it uh, uh, will be something that the uh, public will, will enjoy and, and that will be informative and a place that they can go to to find things and, oh. and get information and, and stay current on what's happening in, in the it, What's what's the website where people can subscribe? Uh, VegWorldMag.com. VegWorldMag.com. VegWorldMag, M-A-G.com? G, yeah, like mag. Okay. 
Very good. All right. Now, I have another question because, you know, it's an election year and everybody's thinking about stuff like that. And, and Ed, you spent a lot of your life in, in public service. Here's my question. Do you think that a person who eats plant-based and holds to these principles that are dear <laughs> to us has a chance in the larger political arena you know um ben carson kept quiet about it he's pretty much he's seventh day adventist and he's either a vegan or vegetarian from what i hear but i've been able to confirm that yeah we've heard that about him and, and through some people that know him um, ah. you know i don't know it's 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 hard of course in texas it's even more difficult, you know. I, people were saying I was the only vegan mayor in Texas, and and that's probably true, and, and maybe the only vegan mayor there ever has been in Texas. Um, but things are changing, not just you know in Texas, but across the United States and in in Europe. Um, you know, ten years ago when we went to Europe, uh, people didn't know what vegan was there. Now, it's it's becoming a a, a, a well-known popular thing germany of all places believe it or not has really got a huge vegan movement going on there uh they've got uh, uh grocery stores and all kinds of stores that are dedicated to that and uh, its own menus and restaurants and things so uh, it's pretty amazing what's happening in, in a place like germany so i think i think that that we're at the cusp of a of being able to do that uh, dennis kucinich uh you know he uh, has been was congressman from Ohio for a long time. Uh, we've met him, visited with him and his wife. His wife actually has been uh, employed with PCRM as a as a lobbyist for them. But um, uh, you know, we're close to that. Uh, I would say in another five years, I think there's a, a chance where that would not be such a negative thing to people. Uh, but you, you you underestimate the power of the, uh, of the lobby for the meat and dairy industry. It's huge, and they have a tremendous influence in Washington and at the state level at every state. Here, in, in, and of course, in Texas, uh, you know, being what it is. Um, but I think that um, uh, you know, sixty years ago, um, it was. Um, uh, the tobacco industry, I think, it was in the same position that the meat and dairy industry is today. Um, and, of course, the tobacco industry fought the chains tooth and nail. And the meat and dairy industry will do the same thing uh, here. And, and they're much more influential than the tobacco industry was. But as more data comes out, more uh, science is released on on the harmful effects of of, um, of eating highly processed foods and eating uh, a very meat-centric, heavy-oriented, dairy-oriented uh, uh, diet and what the consequences of that are, uh, not only in health tolls to our country, but financially in the health care system and what it's costing us. It's not sustainable, and I think that's beginning to, to make its way out now. And I, I think, yes, it, it, today... I don't know. You know, Kucinich had had a hard time. Uh, he ran for president, also. You know, he he didn't get very far with that. It's it's uh, we're not quite there, in my opinion. But I think we're close. And I think in the next five, certainly the next ten years, I think I don't think it will be viewed. Uh, I don't think it'd be held against a candidate like it would be today. Well, that's very exciting, and and you guys are playing such a, a major role in having all this happen. We're out of time. Everybody, check out healthfest.com, vegworldmag.com. I'll put all the URLs and the information about the Health Fest in the show notes. So if you go to mainstreetvegan.net, click on podcasts, you'll see a drop down for show notes and all the information will be there. And when you come to the Health Fest in April, you get to meet Ed and Amanda Smith. You get to meet me and we'll just chomp on some greens and have a good old time in Texas. Thank you so, so much, Ed and Amanda. See you soon. Just wanted to let you know, it'll be in our historic downtown area. We'll have over 600 people from not only around the United States, but from other countries also. So 
be a great time. 600 lucky people. Thanks so much. Everybody else, stay with us. We'll be back with Paul Chappelle talking about peace on earth. to share the programs that inspire you most with audiences around the world? That's easier than ever with mobile giving. Just text Unity Radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. Tucked away in the Unity Library archives in Unity Village, Missouri, you can find a secret treasure. They are the scripts from Unity co-founder Charles Fillmore's early days on broadcast radio. The teachings of Unity's founders, almost a hundred years old. Now, for the first time in history, you can hear them through the power of the Internet. Join Bob Brock every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, for Unity Classic Radio. Words from our past. Discover the wisdom of Charles Fillmore's talks and of other Unity Radio speakers read on the air again. Call in your comments and questions as Bob and his special guests revisit Unity Radio talks of the past, along with historical background from the early days of the Unity movement. That's Unity Classic Radio. Words from our past. Every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Right here on Unity FM. The voice of an awakening world. You're listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, lovely people. Just at the end of the last segment, as um, Ed and Amanda Smith were leaving, uh, Amanda reminded me of Senator Cory Booker, who is openly vegan. It's kind of funny, you know, openly vegan, like, you know, he's out of the kitchen and letting people know about it. So so that's a, a very, very cool thing. I am really excited about our upcoming guest. Um, Paul Chappelle is a... 2002 graduate of West Point. He was deployed to Iraq and left active duty in November 2009 as a captain. He's the author of the seven-book Road to Peace series. The first five published books in the series are Will War Ever End? The End of War, Peaceful Revolution, The Art of Waging Peace, and The Cosmic Ocean, Lecturing across the country and internationally, Chappelle serves as the Peace Leadership Director for the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, and he also happens to be a peaceful vegan. Welcome, Paul Chappelle. Thank you so much for having me, Victoria. I really appreciate it. 
Well, it is absolutely wonderful to have you here because, as I say, we have a lot of people who are known for being vegan, and I love it when we get people on who are vegan, but who are known for something else. When I came into veganism via vegetarianism a thousand years ago, the term nonviolence was employed so often. We saw this as a Gandhian movement. We talked a lot about ahimsa, that wonderful Sanskrit word for non-harming and, and reverence for life. And now we've expanded and we're about a whole lot of things. But when I think about what you do and I think about that old history of nonviolence, it all seems to come together. So tell us a little bit about the connection between how you choose to live and how you think. Yeah, so you brought up some really good points. One of the catalysts that changed my thinking was going to West Point and being in the Army and learning that militaries around the world, they've treated warfare as a science for over 2,000 years. But nonviolence as a science is actually very recent. And for thousands of years, armies understood the importance of training and discipline and strategy for waging war effectively. But what if we were to approach nonviolence with the same intensity, the same scientific perspective as people approach warfare? And what if activists were as well-trained in nonviolence as soldiers are trained in war? And most activists have no training in how to wage peace effectively. But what if we could really offer that great training and really prepare people for the struggle? And like you're saying, veganism ties into all kinds of different facets and issues, but central to this is nonviolence is the way that we will create change. It is the means because all human problems come from how people think and all progress comes from changing how people think. And nonviolence is the only way we can fundamentally transform people's understanding of humanity's relationship with animals. Well, talk to us a little bit, Paul, just about your own personal life. Now, for you to go through all the rigors of West West Point and the rigors of getting into West Point, you had to really be interested in the military. So what what happened? Yeah, so I grew up in Alabama, and my mother's Korean, my father's half white and half black. And my father, he was born in the 1920s. He had me when he was 54, and so there was a generation skip between me and him. So when I was growing up, both my parents always told me the only place in America where a black man has a fair chance is in the Army. Because my father, growing up in Virginia under segregation in the South during the Great Depression, he had more opportunity in the military than he had in other sectors of American society. One reason is because the military had desegregated prior to the Civil Rights Movement. And so I told my mother in 2009 I was getting out of the Army, and I told her over the phone. And she was screaming at me in the phone, just screaming at me. She said, are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? She said, no one's going to give you a job. No one's going to hire you. She said, it's bad enough you look Asian, but you're also part black. She said, who's going to give a job to a black man who looks Asian? And so those are my parents' fears, but the world has changed. In 1958, only 4% of Americans approved of interracial marriage between blacks and whites. Today, 87% of Americans approve of interracial marriage between blacks and whites. So it's gone from 4 to 87% in one human lifetime. And I am a direct, I've benefited from the civil rights movement, from all these courageous activists who did something. And that really drives me towards the movement to abolish nuclear weapons, the movement to end war, and also toward veganism, because I do not want to do to animals what was done to my ancestors. And one thing I do talk a lot about are the similarities between slavery and our commodification of animals. And also, a lot of vegans know that attitudes towards women's rights have changed dramatically, attitudes towards slavery have changed dramatically. But one thing I really focus on is how did those things actually happen? Why did we live in a world where over 99% of humans thought that slavery was okay, and now over 99% of over 99% of humans think slavery is unjust. So how do we learn the lessons from the anti-slavery movement, from the women's rights movement, and apply that also to veganism? How do we? Well, I think that there's a few things. First of all, we have to understand some things about the human condition in terms of where this problem originated from. And then I can also talk briefly about some of the similarities and differences between veganism and the slavery issue. 
But to go into the origins of this in the human condition, one thing we have to keep in mind is that humans are tool makers. And what I mean by that is other animals also make tools, chimpanzees, crows. But the difference is humans try to turn everything into into a tool. Everything we come across, we try to turn into a tool. So we began by turning sticks and stones into tools. Then we transformed fire into a tool. And then we didn't stop there with inanimate objects. Then we transformed plants into tools. Crops are food-producing tools. Then we didn't stop with plants. We started turning animals into tools. We, horses, pigs, cows, horses. and uh, Horses not only serve the function, they also serve the function, for example, of, of transportation. They can be, be used as beasts of burden. Dogs were used for, for, for herding sheep, for hunting, for protection. And so we didn't just stop with animals. Pigs, cows, chickens are, are food-producing tools. We use animals for all kinds of different purposes. But we also turn human beings into tools, slaves. And slavery is an inevitable product of our, hum- our tool-making impulse, the fact that we try to turn everything into a tool. The whole idea of a slave is a slave is a multi-purpose tool. A slave just does what you want. They, they, they tend to your crops. They walk five miles to the well. They do what you want, and they are a, a multi-purpose tool. But the problem with slavery is slaves are living creatures, and our tool-making impulse, this shows how slavery and the commodification of animals actually have a common origin. They both originate from our tool-making impulse, and we have to understand that our tool-making impulse is really our greatest threat to survival. It is humanity's greatest threat to maybe driving us and most other life on the planet extinct. If you think about We make so many tools. We pile our tools up in garbage cans, in dumpsters, and landfills. Trash is basically uneaten food and discarded tools. Our tools are floating around in the ocean. We just have trash. Plastic bags are tools, of course. Water bottles are tools. They're just piling up in the ocean. And we really have to get a good grip on our tool-making behavior. If you look at your room or your house, we have tools everywhere. Curtains are tools for keeping out light, dental floss, toothbrush, tools for cleaning your teeth, shower curtain for keeping water off the floor. We're surrounded by these tools. Now, our tool-making impulse, it's very powerful because humans not only try to turn sticks and stones into tools, we also make tools out of flesh, blood, and bones. But that is counterbalanced by this natural empathy for the humans that humans have. And this can be seen by the fact that every nomadic hunter-gatherer tribe ever studied they all have to perform rituals and ceremonies to show reverence and appreciation and respect for the animals they kill and also to atone for the guilt that can arise from killing. And if you look at ancient Greece, you have this belief in animal sacrifice. The Greeks believe that the animals consent to die, which, first of all, contradicts the laws of nature. No healthy animal would ever consent to die. But the Greeks wanted to believe that because they felt bad about killing these animals. And if you look at vegetarian attitudes in Hinduism, if you look at uh, Pythagoras, if you look at Plutarch, who is one of the first people to articulate ethical attitudes about vegetarianism, if you look at how children naturally have empathy for animals. And so you have this tension now between our tool-making impulse and our empathy. And you can see that in almost every American home, where most Americans do not view their dogs as tools. They view their dogs as family members. Alexander the Great did not view his horse as a tool. He viewed his horse as a comrade. And so when humans are in close proximity with animals, humans just have this natural empathy for animals because animals, they're not tools. They are living beings. And so the question now is, can we use this empathy and can we channel our ethical evolution in a way that will overpower this tool-making impulse that will allow us to use our tool-making impulse responsibly and ethically? And just as we've started to unravel the issue of slavery over the past couple centuries, I think now is really the time where we are really going to reevaluate and change how we interact with animals. Uh, this is fascinating. I had certainly never heard about tool making as, as a part of uh, of waging war. So a lot of people, Paul, would say. There will be wars as long as there are humans. This is in our DNA. There is no way around it. We just have to figure out how not to kill everybody while we're at it. Is there hope for peace on Earth? Yes. Yeah, so 
people in your audience are probably very familiar where if they talk to people who are non-vegan and tell them that humans don't have to eat animals, that eating animals is bad for our health, that there are all sorts of ethical problems about eating animals, the people might look at this vegan like the person's insane. And so one thing I talk a lot about is that humans are not naturally violent. And the evidence that we have for that is overwhelming. I look primarily at military history, but there is as much evidence for the fact that humans aren't naturally violent as there is for the issue of veganism. But I'm not saying people can't become violent. People can become extremely violent, but violence has causes. If somebody gets malaria or HIV or cancer or tuberculosis, nobody ever says that's human nature. People realize something has gone wrong. How do we fix this? But if people become violent, people say, oh, that's just human nature. We have to bomb people, not realizing that violence has preventable causes that we can understand and work to prevent. And so there have been sick people. I mean, there have been violent people throughout history in, in antiquity, even before then. But there have been sick people throughout history, people who have gotten plague, people who have gotten malaria, people who have been infested with parasites. But nobody says, well, that's just human nature. People see that as something that has strayed from our full potential. And so one reason I do have so much hope that we can end organized war between countries and we can create the same kind of changes in attitude toward animals that we have created towards slaves is because humans have this natural empathy. And we have this natural empathy in a society that does almost nothing to cultivate this empathy. I mean, we live in a society where a lot of the drivers and, and, and principles and values that our culture has actually suppresses our empathy. And yet this empathy can still come to the surface. Imagine if we lived in a society or a culture that actively promoted empathy, that put as much focus into cultivating our empathy as it does into reading and math and science and history. Wow. <laughs> so what what do we do? You talk about waging peace. You talk about peace literacy. How do we do those things and get this capacity? Yeah, so at the root of this problem is our tool-making impulse. Our tools are threatening to drive us extinct in the form of nuclear weapons, pollution, environmental destruction, and the leading cause of climate change, as you know, is animal agriculture. The only way to counterbalance that tool-making impulse is with ethical evolution. And technology has given us so many gifts refrigeration, indoor plumbing, electricity. But the greatest gift that technology will end up giving to humanity is that it's going to force us to evolve ethically. If we do not evolve ethically, our tools will drive drive us extinct. And so in terms of what we can do, we really have to develop peace literacy. We have to, if you go back 3,000 years ago to ancient Greece, during the Trojan War, the Greek and Trojan societies were almost completely illiterate. And imagine if there was a high school anywhere in America today that had a 0% literacy rate, where none of the students or teachers knew how to read. That would get national, international media attention. And so a better term for the ancient Greeks and Trojans is not that they were illiterate, but they were preliterate because they didn't realize that they should know how to read. And so the point I want to make is what if all of us today are living in a preliterate society and we don't realize it? Because when you live in a preliterate society, you don't realize you're preliterate. What if we are living in a society that is preliterate in peace? And the reason why we have so many national problems and global problems and even personal problems and family problems is because our society is preliterate in peace. And there are seven forms of peace literacy that I talk about. The first form of liter- peace literacy is literacy in our shared humanity. The next is literacy in the art of living. Living is an art form, the most difficult art form, but we're not taught how to live. When I was a child, I was never taught how to calm myself down, how to calm other people down, how to resolve conflict, how to have empathy, how to overcome hatred, how to overcome fear. How to, I was never taught these basic life skills. The third form of peace literacy is the literacy in the art of waging peace. The next is literacy in the art of listening. Imagine how dramatically different our society would be if people were literate in how to listen well, if people knew how to listen with empathy. The fifth form of peace literacy is literacy in the nature of reality. And the last two forms of peace literacy are literacy in our responsibility to animals and literacy in our responsibility to creation. So the term I use for veganism 
is it's really a form of literacy. We have to become literate in our responsibility to animals. And I think that by framing veganism also as a form of literacy, people kind of understand how this is something essential that we have to know. If humans do not become literate in our responsibility to animals and our responsibility to creation, our species is going to go extinct. And so I think that dramatic things can happen if more and more people become peace literate and every person who gains peace literacy becomes a benefit to themselves, everyone around them, and the world as a whole. Well, this is absolutely stunning. Now, how much of this came to you while you were in Iraq? I I can't even imagine what it would be like to be in a war zone. How did that change you? Yeah, so uh, part of my what drove me in this direction is I grew up, I had a very traumatic upbringing. My father fought in the Korean and Vietnam Wars. He was in the Army for 30 years, and I had a lot of childhood trauma, and I had all kinds of behavior problems as a child. I got kicked out of elementary school for fighting, almost got kicked out of middle school, got suspended in high school for fighting, and I had all this rage built up inside of me. It was really terrifying how much rage I had. And so my initial interest in peace was trying to heal this rage, realizing that rage, wanting to hurt random people who've never done you any harm, is a terrible feeling. Think about when you've had the best day of your life, when you're in a really good mood. You don't want to hurt anybody. If you're in a really good mood, you're really, really happy, you have a great day, something wonderful happens to you, you don't want to hurt anybody. And if you just want to hurt random people who've never done you any wrong, you are in a tremendous amount of pain. And so that was my initial interest in peace was how do I overcome this this pain? And one of the things with how animals are treated is uh, I have a lot of vivid memories from age two, age three, age four, age five. And and that feeling of, 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 of helplessness and, and physical pain and, and, and terror. Um, I, I, cognitively, animals are very similar to two or three-year-old children. And so that's something that also motivates me. But I think my initial interest was the inner peace aspect. How do you overcome trauma, heal trauma, heal rage? Then when I was at West Point, I began to see how so many of the things you need for waging war, you also need for waging peace. Waging peace, you need strategy and discipline and creative thinking and you need training and you need uh, camaraderie and courage and leadership and, and vision. And then I began to see more of the connections between inner and outer peace as I was in the military. And also a big influence on me is the fact that I'm part black and my father grew up under segregation. And if people had not taken action, if people hadn't taken action in the abolition movement, if people hadn't taken action in the civil rights movement, I wouldn't be here. And I have a moral obligation to pay that back. I have to. It's just my basic duty as a human to pay that back and – you know, we have over 50 billion animals a year that are killed, and we have the potential threat of a nuclear war, which is an increasing problem that people aren't even aware of. And then we have the war issue. We have still racism and sexism in some places and in varying degrees. So there's a lot we can do, but the – I'll just end this comment with this one thing. There's a peace studies professor, Coleman McCarthy, and he asks his students – he says to them, raise your hand if you want to reduce cruelty in the world. Every student raises their hand. He says, raise your hand if you want to reduce climate change. Every student raises their hand. He goes, raise your hand if you want to reduce world hunger. Every student raises their hand. He goes, raise your hand if you want to improve your health. Every student raises their hand. He goes, raise your hand if you want to save money. Every student raises their hand. And, of course, those are five good reasons to become vegan. And so veganism ties into so many of these vi- different issues, and if humans – if most humans don't become vegan by the end of the century, we're going to do irreparable damage to our biosphere. What a statement, and uh, unfortunately true. So does Coleman McCarthy – is he vegan? He's vegan, yes. How wonderful, because I know of his peace work, but I didn't know he was vegan. That It's always fun to me to find out that – Somebody is vegan who isn't necessarily a rock star, <laughs> but who does some other stuff in the world. So that's all, all very cool. So what do we do? How do, how do we start today? You know, I, I, my favorite uh, 
Well, there were two favorite commercials this Christmas. One was Hallmark Cards and the family having the vegan dinner. It was very sweet. The grandfather wanted ham, and his daughter gave him a lovely little Hallmark tree ornament that looked like a pig. Uh, but my other favorite um, TV commercial um this Christmas was, um, and, and I think I'm going to lose it now that I'm telling you this. Ah, what were we talking about? We were talking about peace. Colin McCarthy. Mm-hmm. The pig. This may be the first time I've blanked on a question in doing this show in four and a half years. It was the pig ornament. The pig ornament made me do it. So I'm just going to trust that that will return. But I do just want to ask you instructions. Give us give us tools. Give us three steps that we can take, whether we're vegan or not, whether we're interested in peace as a cause or not in our busy lives. What can we do to make things better? So one thing I'm trying to do is change the paradigm of how we see activism, where if somebody wants to learn, the, if somebody wants to play the violin... They, ju- they realize they have to get training. If somebody wants to do martial arts or, or jiu-jitsu or kung fu or karate, if somebody wants to do ballet, if somebody wants to do painting, sculpting, filmmaking, if somebody wants to play basketball or any instrument or any sport, they realize they have to get training. And with activism, we see it more in this compartmentalized way where we just say, well, can I do this or do that? So I work for the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, and we offer people training in how to wage peace effectively. So I offer workshops all over the country. I've written extensively about how we can wage peace more effectively. But I, I can offer a couple things. I think part of it is how we frame the issue, and we have to tie a new idea into something that people are familiar with. And I think something very interesting about veganism is, are the similarities with slavery. And just to mention one, there are similarities and differences. One thing I just want to mention briefly is that people often think of slavery as that you don't pay people to work. But that's not really what slavery was. Slavery is more about you have the right to kill and rape people with no penalty. If you look at how the Irish were treated under British rule, if you look at how African-American slaves were treated under American rule, is if you're a slave owner, you can rape and kill your slave. You don't have to claim self-defense. You don't have to commute, accuse the slave of committing a crime. You can just kill them. And you can even admit to it, and there's no penalty. Or if you kill someone else's slave, you might own property damages. And so that's very similar to how, of course, pigs and chickens and cows are treated today, is you have a right to kill them with no penalty. And you also see how dogs are in this gray area where I don't have a legal right to just kill my dog for no reason. If I were to kill my dog, I have a really wonderful shelter dog. If I were to kill my dog, slit my dog's throat, record it, and put it on YouTube, I mean, that would be worse than what that dentist did who killed Cecil the Lion. And people, they don't believe that you have a right to arbitrarily kill your dog for no reason. People think that's horrific because people see dogs as family members and as these sentient creatures. But if scientifically speaking, pigs and cows are like dogs in terms of intelligence and emotional ability, what's the difference between killing a dog and killing a pig? And so I think that when we really understand what slavery was and and the differences between our treatment of animals and slavery, and the similarities and what made that movement effective. Well, a lot of what made that movement effective was how they framed their issue. And I think that a lot of the ways veganism has been framed has, has been very effective. As you know, it's hard to find an American today who hasn't heard of veganism. And that is remarkable. 50, 60 years ago, right? even in the 1990s, I know people who became vegan in the 1990s, and they didn't even know what the word was, and they were basically vegan, and they even didn't even know what they were. Oh, that's so cool. the rise in awareness has been incredible. And even in the past 10 years, I've seen how people see veganism as a lot less weird today than they did 10 years ago. So it's it, been dramatic. It, in our last minute, I just want to follow up with one quick question on that. I think that we've worked very hard as vegans in the past 50 years 
to maybe overcome our connection with what was called hippies and peaceniks in in the 60s and 70s. And so I think sometimes as vegans, we tend to want to be a little bit quiet on these broader peace issues because we don't want to be the stereotype. I think we also want to be very respectful of those serving in the military. So just in, in our last 30 seconds, can you address that? Yeah, I think that that um, how we approach this, we have to take this from 2% of Americans being vegan to over 97% of humans being vegan. And unlike the movement to abolish slavery and the women's rights movement, this issue threatens human survival. We have to act with the utmost urgency because slavery was not the leading cause of environmental destruction in the world. So we really have to push this issue very urgently, but people have to see that vegans, I mean, these are human values. There's no reason why a conservative, a liberal, a Republican, a Democrat cannot be a vegan. Just like today, both political parties, right, support women's right to vote. They both support women's right to get a college education. That's a nonpartisan issue. And we have to show people this is a nonpartisan issue that it doesn't matter if you're an athlete, if you're an artist, if you work a middle-class job, if you're black, white. doesn't matter what race you are, male, female. Veganism benefits us, and it's something that all humans have to move toward. Amen. <laughs> oh, Paul Chappelle, I, I'm crazy about you. I can hardly wait till we meet in three dimensions. The website, everybody, is PeacefulRevolution.com. Paul's Facebook page is Art of Waging Peace. So find him at both of those places. I'll put all this on the show notes at uh, MainStreetVegan.net. Thank you so much, Paul Chappelle. Thank you, Ed and Amanda Smith. Thank you, listeners. Jeff Comfort, our engineer, and Unity Online Radio. To everybody out there, God bless you, and eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. If I were brave, I'd walk the races where fools and dreamers dare to tread and never lose faith. How is life working for you? Would it be okay with you if life got easier, simpler, yet more meaningful and vibrant? Join certified life coach Carla McClellan Tuesday afternoons for Vibrant Living. Each week, Coach Carla and her guests will share strategies and solutions designed to make your life more vibrant. Is there something in your life you'd like help with? A dream you'd like to achieve? A relationship you'd like to improve? Call into the show toll-free for Coaching with Carla. That's Vibrant Living, Life Coaching with Carla, Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Central on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. What if we're all meant to do what we secretly dream? Life is a balancing act. With hectic schedules and ceaseless demands on our time and attention, we've learned to prioritize. So often, though, I neglect to make time for what is most important. In our drive to get things done, there is an underlying desire, a need we all share, the need for peace. It is a gift that waits within me, ready to be enjoyed if I will simply allow myself the opportunity to connect. Inner peace lessens the everyday stresses of life and reminds me that how I am, the mental and spiritual point from which I view myself, is as important as what I do. I can make peace a priority. Peace can begin with me. To find a Unity Church near you, please visit our website at www.unity.org.
somewhere tucked away in the Unity Library archives in Unity Village, Missouri, you can find a secret treasure. They are the scripts from Unity co-founder Charles Fillmore's early days on broadcast radio. The teachings of Unity's founders, almost a hundred years old. Now, for the first time in history, you can hear them through the power of the Internet. Join Bob Brock every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, for Unity Classic Radio, words from our past. Discover the wisdom of Charles Fillmore's talks and of other Unity Radio speakers read on the air again. Call in your comments and questions as Bob and his special guests revisit Unity Radio talks of the past along with historical background from the early days of the Unity Movement. That's Unity Classic Radio, words from our past, every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, right here on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 